Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myth, Heresies, and Hearsay, Episode 16, The Breach. We're back to Myth, Heresies, and Hearsay in a big way here. I mentioned that I had more to the story of Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah. You remember after Judah's shame that he brought Tamar into his house to have their baby. As it turns out, babies. Yes, twins. And it came to pass in the time of her travail that, behold, twins were in her womb. The story in Genesis 38, verses 27 through 30, is that one of the twins was coming out first, that the midwife put a red string around the wrist of the child to mark which of the twins was the eldest, as was the custom for the day. But this child pulled back, and the other child came out first. The midwife was astonished and said, How have you broken forth? A breach be upon you. Therefore the child was named Pharez, and afterward came out his brother, the one with the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So here comes the myth part. Remember, myth is something that may or may not be true, but can't be verified because there is just not enough written evidence either way. Mind you, I am not married to this myth-slash-theory I am about to put forth, but I'm also not ready to dismiss it either. I just bring it up so that you know it's out there and might want to know that there are some people who, uh, who cling to this. There really is only circumstantial evidence for what I'm going to tell you. Circumstantial evidence is something that can be easily enough explained away, but there is an awful lot of this circumstantial evidence for me to completely dismiss. And with a podcast called Myth, Heresies, and Hearsay, I think we're in fair territory here. So the myth slash theory goes like this. The breach that the midwife declares in this case is a separation between the brothers. The Pharez line goes on through David and all the kings of Israel to Jesus, i.e. the kingly line. While the other brother who felt that his line should be the kingly line became a wayward traveler and eventually departs for places unknown and departs from history. The myth continues that this line of Zerah did become kings in the far-off lands that they traveled to in parts of Spain and Ireland. Far-fetched, I know. But I take note that the name of ancient Ireland is Hibernia, perhaps a corruption of Hebrunia, and that Spain is in the Hiberian Peninsula or that area we know today as Zaragoza might be pronounced Zaracasa, or House of Zara. So back to the breach. The Hebrew word for breach here is that of a wound, a wound that needs to be healed. Hold on to that thought. 
The last king in Judah was Zedekiah, who made war with Babylon in an attempt to break free of them. Bad move. In the history of bad moves, this one ranks pretty high up there. After the defeat, the Babylonians caught up with Zedekiah and brought him to Babylon, where Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, in a nice intimate meeting, killed all of Zedekiah's sons in front of him, then put Zedekiah's eyes out so that this would be the last thing Zedekiah ever saw. How's that for carnage? With Zedekiah's sons all dead, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he has put an end to the kingly line of Judah. In a sense, he has. Zedekiah is described in the book of Ezekiel as a tall cedar tree that will be cut down along with its branches. The branches in this case would be Zedekiah's sons. But the verse goes on to say that two tender twigs will be saved and replanted in a high place. If branches are symbolic of king's sons, a tender twig is undoubtedly young daughters. Biblical history tells us that the prophet Jeremiah and about a hundred people, including Zedekiah's daughters, and certain relics legged it to Egypt after the Babylonians destroyed Israel. Since the account of this ends here, many conclude that Jeremiah must have died in Egypt. If so, then Jeremiah would not have completed his mission. Jeremiah was commissioned to uproot and replant. He obviously had not done any of that yet. So back to the myth. There are legends that a white-haired holy man landed by ship in modern-day Spain. He had two young women with him. He married one of these off to the king in Zaragoza and left with the other maiden. We pick up the rest of the legends of the Irish bards who tell us that a prophet called Olam Fadia, which means great prophet in the Irish language, he arrived with the other young virgin. Her name was Tefi, and that this Olam Fadia presented her to King Eochade, rumored to be of the line of Zerah, thus healing the breach, and the lines of Pharaohs and the line of Zerah were once again united. It's a nice story, and I'd love to say, and they lived happily ever after. But we don't know. We don't even know if any of this is true. We do know that there was a king, Eochade, and a queen, Tefi, at that time. This story is certainly outside of any biblical information we have. One of the relics that Jeremiah was supposed to have brought with him in the journey was a large stone called the Leophael, rumored to be Jacob's pillar that he laid his head on and dreamt that he saw angels ascending and descending on a ladder to heaven. That's in Genesis 28, by the way. The interesting thing about the Leophael, spelled L-A-I-F-A-I-L, Leophael, 
is that when you read it from right to left, as the Hebrews did in their language, it still comes out to lay a fail, either direction you read it in. Now, Jeremiah was told that he was commissioned to replant, replant, replant. To our sensibilities, it sounds as though the author wanted to emphasize how emphatic a statement this was. But this is how the Hebrews would have understood that Jeremiah was to replant three times. Legend has it that all the Irish high kings were coronated over this stone until 513 AD. When the throne was replanted in Scotland, the kings in Scotland coordinated over the stone until 1296. When Edward I, he of the Braveheart fame, great movie, by the way, especially if you like fantasy, Edward brought the stone back to England, and the throne is replanted again, and every king in England has been coronated over this stone since. The Leophel became known as the Stone of Destiny, and then as the Stone of Scone, when in Scotland, where it resided in the township of Scone in Scotland. Some crazy Scottish college students stole the stone in London in the 1950s, and sometime after it appeared back in Scone. Gosh, I love a good scone, don't you? The English and the Scots settled it by allowing it to stay in Scone without a fight, as long as they could use the ancient rock in England for their coronations, as it was when King Charles was coronated. Fascinating story. And it may be just that, a story. I hadn't planned on beating this drum too hard, else you may think I'm telling you this is more than just a story. But I am planning on... Not a sequel to this one, but a prequel. Sometimes prequels are better than sequels. Although I did like The Lord of the Rings a bit more than The Hobbit. So we're going to go back in time a little next time and put this thing to bed. Speaking of prequels, I know I have been woefully negligent with the book review, so I'm going to add this one to the list. This one is called Before Genesis by Tom Horn and Donna Howell. Some believe the earth to be about 6,000 years old. Others contend the earth to be much older, billions of years. What does the data tell us? If there was life on earth before the story of creation, what was it like? Was there intelligent life? If so, were they human? Or something else. 300 years ago, people believed that the sun and the moon and all the planets rotated around the earth. You can easily see why that seemed so, but that is not what the data told Galileo. He was ridiculed by some of the great minds of the day. Today we know he was correct. I'm actually in the process of reading this prequel of prequels right now, and have learned quite a lot from it. So if you've already read the book, please, no spoilers. And that's all for now. Looking forward to next time. 
email me, listen to me on Spotify.